Section 22 of Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Denny Sayers. Prefaces and Prologues to Famous Books. Edited by Charles W. Eliot. Preface to Shakespeare by Samuel Johnson, 1765. That praises are without reason lavished on the dead, and that the honours due only to excellence are paid to antiquity, is a complaint likely to be always continued by those who, being able to add nothing to truth, hope for eminence from the heresies of paradox, or those who, being forced by disappointment upon consolatory expedients, are willing to hope from posterity what the present age refuses, and flatter themselves that the regard which is yet denied by envy will be at last bestowed by time. Antiquity, like every other quality that attracts the notice of mankind, has undoubtedly votaries that reverence it, not from reason, but from prejudice. Some seem to admire, indiscriminately, whatever has been long preserved, without considering that time has sometimes cooperated with chance. All, perhaps, are more willing to honour past than present excellence, and the mind contemplates genius through the shades of age, as the eye surveys the sun through artificial opacity. The great contention of criticism is to find the faults of the moderns and the beauties of the ancients. While an author is yet living, we estimate his powers by his worst performance, and when he is dead, we rate them by his best. To works, however, of which the excellence is not absolute and definite, but gradual and comparative, to works not raised upon principles demonstrative and scientific, but appealing wholly to observation and experience, no other test can be applied than length of duration and continuance of esteem. What mankind have long possessed, they have often examined and compared, and if they persist to value the possession, it is because frequent comparisons have confirmed opinion in its favour. As among the works of nature no man can properly call a river deep, or a mountain high, without the knowledge of many mountains, and many rivers, so in the productions of genius nothing can be styled excellent till it has been compared with other works of the same kind. Demonstration immediately displays its power, and has nothing to hope or fear from the flux of years, but works tentative and experimental must be estimated by their proportion to the general and collective ability of man, as it is discovered in a long succession of endeavours. Of the first building that was raised, it might with certainty be determined that it was round or square, but whether it was spacious or lofty, must have been referred to time. The Pythagorean scale of numbers was at once discovered to be perfect, but the poems of Homer, 
we yet know not to transcend the common limits of human intelligence but by remarking that nation after nation and century after century has been able to do little more than transpose his incidents new name his characters and paraphrase his sentiments the reverence due to writings that have long subsisted arises therefore not from any credulous confidence in the superior wisdom of past ages or gloomy persuasion of the degeneracy of mankind but is the consequence of acknowledged and indubitable positions that what has been longest known has been most considered and what is most considered is best understood the poet of whose works i have undertaken the revision may now begin to assume the dignity of an ancient and claim the privilege of established fame and prescriptive veneration he has long outlived his century the term commonly fixed as the test of literary merit whatever advantages he might once derive from personal allusions local customs or temporary opinions have for many years been lost and every topic of merriment or motive of sorrow which the modes of artificial life afforded him now only obscure the scenes which they once illuminated the effects of favour and competition are at an end the tradition of his friendships and his enemies has perished his works support no opinion with arguments nor supply any faction with invectives they can neither indulge vanity nor gratify malignity but are read without any other reason than the desire of pleasure and are therefore praised only as pleasure is obtained yet thus unassisted by interest or passion they have passed through variations of taste and changes of manners and as they devolve from one generation to another have received new honours at every transmission but because human judgment though it be gradually gaining upon certainty never becomes infallible and approbation though long continued may yet be only the approbation of prejudice or fashion it is proper to inquire by what peculiarities of excellence shakespeare has gained and kept the favour of his countrymen nothing can please many and please long but just representations of general nature particular manner can be known to few and therefore few only can judge how nearly they are copied the irregular combinations of fanciful invention may delight a while by that novelty of which the common satiety of life sends us all in quest but the pleasures of sudden wonder are soon exhausted and the mind can only repose on the stability of truth shakespeare is above all writers at least above all modern writers the poet of nature the poet that holds up to his readers a faithful mirror of manners and of life his characters are not modified by the customs of particular places unpractised by the rest of the world by the 
peculiarities of studies or professions which can operate but upon small numbers or by the accidents of transient fashions or temporary opinions they are the genuine progeny of common humanity such as the world will always supply and observation will always find his persons act and speak by the influence of those general passions and principles by which all minds are agitated and the whole system of life is continued in motion in the writings of other poets a character is too often an individual in those of shakespeare it is commonly a species it is from this wide extension of design that so much instruction is derived it is this which fills the plays of shakespeare with practical axioms and domestic wisdom it was said of euripides that every verse was a precept and it may be said of shakespeare that from his works may be collected a system of civil and economical prudence yet his real power is not shown in the splendour of particular passages but by the progress of his fable and the tenor of his dialogue and he that tries to recommend him by select quotations will succeed like the peasant in hierocles who when he offered his house to sale carried a brick in his pocket as a specimen it will not easily be imagined how much shakespeare excels in accommodating his sentiments to real life but by comparing him with other offers it was observed of the ancient schools of declamation that the more diligently they were frequented the more was the student disqualified for the world because he found nothing there which he should ever meet in any other place the same remark may be applied to every stage but that of shakespeare the theatre when it is under any other direction is peopled by such characters as were never seen conversing in a language which was never heard upon topics which will never rise in the commerce of mankind but the dialogue of this author is often so evidently determined by the incident which produces it and is pursued with so much ease and simplicity that it seems scarcely to claim the merit of fiction but to have been gleaned by diligent selection out of common conversation and common occurrences upon every other stage the universal agent is love by whose power all good and evil is distributed and every action quickened or retarded to bring a lover a lady and a rival into the fable to entangle them in contradictory obligations perplex them with oppositions of interest and harass them with violence of desires inconsistent with each other to make them meet in rapture and part in agony to fill their mouths with hyperbolical joy and outrageous sorrow to distress them as nothing human ever was distressed to deliver them as nothing human ever was delivered is the business of a modern dramatist for this probability is violated life is misrepresented 
and language is depraved. But love is only one of many passions, and as it has no great influence upon the sum of life, it has little operation in the dramas of a poet who caught his ideas from the living world, and exhibited only what he saw before him. He knew that any other passion, as it was regular or exorbitant, was a cause of happiness or calamity. Characters thus ample and general were not easily discriminated and preserved, yet perhaps no poet ever kept his personages more distinct from each other. I will not say with Pope that every speech may be assigned to the proper speaker, because many speeches there are which have nothing characteristical. But perhaps, though some may be equally adapted to every person, it will be difficult to find any that can be properly transferred from the present possessor to another claimant. The choice is right when there is reason for choice. Other dramatists can only gain attention by hyperbolical or aggravated characters, by fabulous and unexampled excellence or depravity, as the writers of barbarous romances invigorated the reader by a giant and a dwarf, and he that should form his expectations of human affairs from the play or from the tale would be equally deceived. Shakespeare has no heroes. His scenes are occupied only by men, who act and speak as the reader thinks that he should himself have spoken or acted on the same occasion, even where the agency is supernatural the dialogue is level with life. Other writers disguise the most natural passions and most frequent incidents, so that he who contemplates them in the book will not know them in the world. Shakespeare approximates the remote, and familiarizes the wonderful. The event which he represents will not happen, but if it were possible its effects would probably be such as he has assigned, and it may be said that he has not only shown human nature as it acts in real exigencies, but as it would be found in trials to which it cannot be exposed. This, therefore, is the praise of Shakespeare, that his drama is the mirror of life, that he who has mazed his imagination in following the phantoms which other writers raise up before him, may here be cured of his delirious ecstasies by reading human sentiments in human language, by scenes from which a hermit may estimate the transactions of the world, and a confessor predict the progress of the passions. His adherence to general nature has exposed him to the censure of critics, who form their judgments from narrow principles. Dennis and Reimer think his Romans not sufficiently Roman, and Voltaire perhaps thinks decency violated when the Danish usurper is represented as a drunkard. But Shakespeare always makes nature predominate over accident, and if he preserves the essential character, is not very careful of distinctions superinduced and adventitious. 
his story requires romans or kings but he thinks only on men he knew that rome like every other city had men of all dispositions and wanting a buffoon he went into the senate house for that which the senate house would certainly have afforded him he was inclined to show an usurper and a murderer not only odious but despicable he therefore added drunkenness to his other qualities knowing that kings love wine like other men and that wine exerts its natural power upon kings these are the petty cavils of petty minds a poet overlooks the casual distinction of country and condition as a painter satisfied with the figure neglects the drapery the censure which he has incurred by mixing comic and tragic scenes as it extends to all his works deserves more consideration let the fact be first stated and then examined shakespeare's plays are not in the rigorous and critical sense either tragedies or comedies but compositions of a distinct kind exhibiting the real state of sublunary nature which partakes of good and evil joy and sorrow mingled with endless variety of proportion and innumerable modes of combination and expressing the course of the world in which the loss of one is the gain of another in which at the same time the reveller is hasting to his wine and the mourner burying his friend in which the malignity of one is sometimes defeated by the frolic of another and many mischiefs and many benefits are done and hindered without design out of this chaos of mingled purposes and casualties the ancient poets according to the laws which custom had prescribed selected some the crimes of men and some their absurdities some the momentous vicissitudes of life and some the lighter occurrences some the terrors of distress and some the gaieties of prosperity thus rose the two modes of imitation known by the names of tragedy and comedy compositions intended to promote different ends by contrary means and considered as so little allied that i do not recollect among the greeks or romans a single writer who attempted both shakespeare has united the powers of exciting laughter and sorrow not only in one mind but in one composition almost all his plays are divided between serious and ludicrous characters and in the successive evolutions of the design sometimes produce seriousness and sorrow and sometimes levity and laughter that this is a practice contrary to the rules of criticism will be readily allowed but there is always an appeal open from criticism to nature the end of writing is to instruct the end of poetry is to instruct by pleasing that the mingled drama may convey all the instruction of tragedy or comedy cannot be denied because it includes both in its alterations of exhibition and approaches nearer than either to the appearance of life by showing how great machinations and 
slender designs may promote or obviate one another and the high and the low cooperate in the general system by unavoidable concatenation it is objected that by this change of scenes the passions are interrupted in their progression and that the principal event being not advanced by a due gradation of preparatory incidents once at last the power to move which constitutes the perfection of dramatic poetry this reasoning is so specious that it is received as true even by those who in daily experience feel it to be false the interchanges of mingled scenes seldom fail to produce the intended vicissitudes of passion fiction cannot move so much but that the attention may be easily transferred and though it must be allowed that pleasing melancholy be sometimes interrupted by unwelcome levity yet let it be considered likewise that melancholy is often not pleasing and that the disturbance of one man may be the relief of another that different auditors have different habitudes and that upon the whole all pleasure consists in variety the players who in their edition divided our author's works into comedies histories and tragedies seem not to have distinguished the three kinds by any very exact or definite ideas and action which ended happily to the principal persons however serious or distressful through its intermediate incidents in their opinion constituted a comedy the idea of a comedy continued long amongst us and plays were written which by changing the catastrophe were tragedies to-day and comedies to-morrow tragedy was not in those times a poem of more general dignity or elevation than comedy it required only a calamitous conclusion with which the common criticism of that age was satisfied whatever lighter pleasure it afforded in its progress history was a series of actions with no other than chronological succession independent on each other and without any tendency to introduce or regulate the conclusion it is not always very nicely distinguished from tragedy there is not much nearer approach to unity of action in the tragedy of antony and cleopatra than in the history of richard the second but a history might be continued through many plays as it had no plan it had no limits through all these denominations of the drama shakespeare's mode of composition is the same an interchange of seriousness and merriment by which the mind is softened at one time and exhilarated at another but whatever be his purpose whether to gladden or depress or to conduct the story without vehemence or emotion through tracks of easy and familiar dialogue he never fails to attain his purpose as he commands us we laugh or mourn or sit silent with quiet expectation in tranquillity without indifference when shakespeare's plan is understood most of the criticisms of rhymer and voltaire 
vanish away. The play of Hamlet is opened without impropriety by two sentinels. Iago bellows at Brabantio's window without injury to the scheme of the play, though in terms which a modern audience would not easily endure. The character of Polonius is seasonable and useful, and the gravediggers themselves may be heard with applause. Shakespeare, engaged in dramatic poetry, with the world open before him. The rules of the ancients were yet known to few, but public judgment was unformed. He had no example of such fame as might force him upon imitation, nor critics of such authority as might restrain his extravagance. He therefore indulged his natural disposition, and his disposition, as Rhymer has remarked, led him to comedy. In tragedy he often writes with great appearance of toil and study, what is written at last with little felicity. But in his comic scenes he seems to produce without labour what no labour can improve. In tragedy he is always struggling after some occasion to be comic, but in comedy he seems to repose or to luxuriate as in a mode of thinking congenial to his nature. In his tragic scenes there is always something wanting, but his comedy often surpasses expectation or desire. His comedy pleases by the thoughts and the language, and his tragedy, for the greater part, by incident and action. His tragedy seems to be skill, his comedy to be instinct. The force of his comic scenes has suffered little diminution from the changes made by a century and a half in manners or in words. As his personages act upon principles arising from genuine passion, very little modified by particular forms, their pleasures and vexations are communicable to all times and to all places. They are natural, and therefore durable. The adventitious peculiarities of personal habits are only superficial dyes, bright and pleasing for a little while, yet soon fading to a dim tent, without any remains of former luster. But the discriminations of true passion are the colours of nature. They pervade the whole mass, and can only perish with the body that exhibits them. The accidental compositions of heterogeneous modes are dissolved by the chance which combined them, but the uniform simplicity of primitive qualities neither admits increase nor suffers decay. The sand-heap by one flood is scattered by another, but the rock always continues in its place. The stream of time which is continually washing the dissoluble fabrics of other poets passes without injury by the adamant of Shakespeare. If there be, what I believe there is in every nation, a style which never becomes obsolete, a certain mode of phraseology so consonant and congenial to the analogy and principles of its respective language, as to remain settled and unaltered. This style is probably to be sought in the common intercourse of life. 
among those who speak only to be understood, without ambition of elegance. The polite are always catching modish innovations, and the learned depart from established forms of speech, in hope of finding or making better. Those who wish for distinction forsake the vulgar, when the vulgar is right. But there is a conversation above grossness, and below refinement where propriety resides, and where this poet seems to have gathered his comic dialogue. He is therefore more agreeable to the ears of the present age than any other author equally remote, and among his other excellencies deserves to be studied as one of the original masters of our language. These observations are to be considered not as unexceptionally constant, but as containing general and predominant truth. Shakespeare's familiar dialogue is affirmed to be smooth and clear, yet not wholly without ruggedness or difficulty, as a country may be eminently fruitful, though it has spots unfit for cultivation. His characters are praised as natural, though their sentiments are sometimes forced, and their actions improbable, as the earth upon the whole is spherical, though its surface is varied with protuberances and cavities. Shakespeare's, with his excellencies, has likewise faults, and faults sufficient to obscure and overwhelm any other merit. I shall show them in the proportion in which they appear to me, without envious malignity or superstitious veneration. No question can be more innocently discussed than a dead poet's pretensions to renown, and little regard is due to that bigotry which sets candor higher than truth. His first defect is that to which may be imputed most of the evil in books or in men. He sacrifices virtue to convenience, and is so much more careful to please than to instruct, that he seems to write without any moral purpose, from his writings, indeed, a system of social duty may be selected, for he that thinks reasonably must think morally. But his precepts and axioms drop casually from him. He makes no just distribution of good or evil, nor is always careful to show in the virtuous a disapprobation of the wicked. He carries his persons indifferently through right and wrong, and at the close dismisses them without further care, and leaves their examples to operate by chance. This fault, the barbarity of his age, cannot extenuate, for it is always a writer's duty to make the world better, and justice is a virtue independent on time or place. The plots are often so loosely formed that a very slight consideration may improve them, and so carelessly pursued, that he seems not always fully to comprehend his own design. He omits opportunities of instructing or delighting, which the train of his story seems to force upon him, and apparently rejects those exhibitions which would be more affecting, for the sake of those which are more easy. It may be observed that in many of his plays the latter part is evidently neglected. When he found himself near the end of his work, 
and, in view of his reward, he shortened the labor to snatch the profit. He therefore remits his efforts where he should most vigorously exert them, and his catastrophe is improbably produced or imperfectly represented. He had no regard to distinction of time or place, but gives to one age or nation, without scruple, the customs, institutions, and opinions of another, at the expense not only of likelihood, but of possibility. These faults Pope has endeavoured, with more zeal than judgment, to transfer to his imagined interpolators. We need not wonder to find Hector quoting Aristotle, when we see the loves of Theseus and Hippolyta, combined with the Gothic mythology of fairies. Shakespeare, indeed, was not the only violator of chronology, for in the same age Sidney, who wanted not the advantages of learning, has in his Arcadia confounded the pastoral with the feudal times, the days of innocence, quiet, and security, with those of turbulence, violence, and adventure. In his comic scenes, he is seldom very successful when he engages his characters in reciprocations of smartness and contests of sarcasm. Their jests are commonly gross, and their pleasantry licentious. Neither his gentlemen nor his ladies have much delicacy, nor are sufficiently distinguished from his clowns by any appearance of refined manners. Whether he represented the real conversation of his time is not easy to determine. The reign of Elizabeth is commonly supposed to have been a time of stateliness, formality, and reserve. Yet perhaps the relaxations of that severity were not very elegant. There must, however, have been always some modes of gaiety preferable to others, and a writer ought to choose the best. In tragedy his performance seems constantly to be worse, as his labour is more. The effusions of passions which exigency forces out are for the most part striking and energetic, but whenever he solicits his invention, or strains his faculties, the offspring of his throes is tumour, meanness, tediousness, and obscurity. In narration he affects a disproportionate pomp of diction, and a wearisome train of circumlocution, and tells the incident imperfectly in many words, which might have been more plainly delivered in few. Narration in dramatic poetry is naturally tedious, as it is unanimated and inactive, and obstructs the progress of the action. It should therefore always be rapid, and enlivened by frequent interruption. Shakespeare found it an encumbrance, and instead of lightening it by brevity, endeavoured to recommend it by dignity and splendour. His declamations, or set speeches, are commonly cold and weak, for his power was the power of nature, when he endeavoured, like other tragic writers, to catch the opportunities of amplification, and instead of inquiring what the occasion demanded, to show how much his stores of knowledge could supply, he seldom escapes without the pity or resentment of his reader. 
it is incident to him to be now and then entangled with an unwieldy sentiment which he cannot well express and will not reject he struggles with it a while and if he continues stubborn comprises it in words such as occur and leaves it to be disentangled and evolved by those who have more leisure to bestow upon it not that always where the language is intricate the thought is subtle or the image always great where the line is bulky the equality of words to things is very often neglected and trivial sentiments and vulgar ideas disappoint the attention to which they are recommended by sonorous epithets and swelling figures but the admirers of this great poet have never less reason to indulge their hopes of supreme excellence than when he seems fully resolved to sink them in dejection and mollify them with tender emotions by the fall of greatness the danger of innocence or the crosses of love he is not long soft and pathetic without some idle conceit or contemptible equivocation he no sooner begins to move than he counteracts himself and terror and pity as they are rising in the mind are checked and blasted by sudden frigidity a quibble is to shakespeare what luminous vapours are to the traveller he follows it at all adventures it is sure to lead him out of his way and sure to engulf him in the mire it has some malignant power over his mind and its fascinations are irresistible whatever be the dignity or profundity of his disquisition whether he be enlarging knowledge or exalting affection whether he be amusing attention with incidents or enchaining it in suspense let but a quibble spring up before him and he leaves his work unfinished a quibble is the golden apple for which he will always turn aside from his career or stoop from his elevation a quibble poor and barren as it is gave him such delight that he was content to purchase it by the sacrifice of reason propriety and truth a quibble was to him the fatal cleopatra for which he lost the world and was content to lose it it will be thought strange that in enumerating the defects of this writer i have not yet mentioned his neglect of the unities his violation of those laws which have been instituted and established by the joint authority of poets and critics for his other deviations from the art of writing i resign him to critical justice without making any other demand in his favour than that which must be indulged to all human excellence that his virtues be rated with his failings but from the censure which this irregularity may bring upon him i shall with due reverence to that learning which i must oppose adventure to try how i can defend him his histories being neither tragedies nor comedies are not subject to any of their laws nothing more is necessary to all the praise which they expect than that the changes of action be so prepared as to be understood that the incidents be various and affecting and the characters consistent natural and distinct 
no other unity is intended, and therefore none is to be sought. In his other works he has well enough preserved the unity of action. He has not, indeed, an intrigue regularly perplexed and regularly unravelled. He does not endeavour to hide his design only to discover it, for this is seldom the order of real events, and Shakespeare is the poet of nature. But his plan has commonly what Aristotle requires, a beginning, a middle, and an end. One event is concatenated with another, and the conclusion follows by easy consequence. There are perhaps some incidents that might be spared, as in other poets there is much talk that only fills up time upon the stage. But the general system makes gradual advances, and the end of the play is the end of expectation. To the unities of time and place he has shown no regard, and perhaps a nearer view of the principles on which they stand will diminish their value, and withdraw from them the veneration which, from the time of Corneille, they have very generally received by discovering that they have given more trouble to the poet than pleasure to the auditor. The necessity of observing the unities of time and place arises from the supposed necessity of making the drama credible. The critics hold it impossible that an action of months or years can be possibly believed to pass in three hours, or that the spectator can suppose himself to sit in the theatre while ambassadors go and return between distant kings, while armies are levied and towns besieged, while an exile wanders and returns, or till he whom they saw courting his mistress shall lament the untimely fall of his son. The mind revolts from evident falsehood, and fiction loses its force when it departs from the resemblance of reality. From the narrow limitation of time necessarily arises the contraction of place. The spectator, who knows that he saw the first act at Alexandria, cannot suppose that he sees the next at Rome, at a distance to which not the dragons of Medea could, in so short a time, have transported him. He knows with certainty that he has not changed his place, and he knows that place cannot change itself, that what was a house cannot become a plain, that what was Thebes can never be Persopolis. Such is the triumphant language with which a critic exults over the misery of an irregular poet, and exults commonly without resistance or reply. It is time, therefore, to tell him by the authority of Shakespeare that he assumes, as an unquestionable principle, a position which, while his breath is forming it into words, his understanding pronounces to be false. It is false that any representation is mistaken for reality, that any dramatic fable in its materiality was ever credible, or for a single moment was ever credited. The objection arising from the impossibility of passing the first hour at Alexandria and the next at Rome, supposes that when the play opens, the spectator really imagines himself at Alexandria, 
and believes that his walk to the theatre has been a voyage to egypt and that he lives in the days of antony and cleopatra surely he that imagines this may imagine more he that can take the stage at one time for the palace of the ptolemies may take it in half an hour for the promontory of actium delusion if delusion be admitted has no certain limitation if the spectator can be once persuaded that his old acquaintance are alexander and caesar that a room illuminated with candles is the plain of pharsalia or the bank of granicus he is in a state of elevation above the reach of reason or of truth and from the heights of empyrean poetry may despise the circumspections of terrestrial nature there is no reason why a mind thus wandering in ecstasy should count the clock or why an hour should not be a century in that calenture of the brains that can make the stage a field the truth is that the spectators are always in their senses and know from the first act to the last that the stage is only a stage and that the players are only players they came to hear a certain number of lines recited with just gesture and elegant modulation the lines relate to some action and an action must be in some place but the different actions that complete a story may be in places very remote from each other and where is the absurdity of showing that space to represent first athens and then sicily which was always known to be neither sicily nor athens but a modern theatre by supposition as place is introduced times may be extended the time required by the fable elapses for the most part between the acts for of so much of the action as is represented the real and poetical duration is the same if in the first act preparation for war against mithridates are represented to be made in rome the event of the war may without absurdity be represented in the catastrophe as happening in pontus we know that there is neither war nor preparation for war we know that we are neither in rome nor pontus that neither mithridates nor lucullus are before us the drama exhibits successive imitations of successive actions and why may not the second imitation represent an action that happened years after the first if it be so connected with it that nothing but time can be supposed to intervene time is of all modes of existence most obsequious to the imagination a lapse of years is as easily conceived as a passage of hours in contemplation we easily contract the time of real actions and therefore willingly permit it to be contracted when we see only their imitation it will be asked how the drama moves if it is not credited it is credited with all the credit due to a drama it is credited whenever it moves as a just picture of a real original as representing to the auditor what he would himself feel if he were to do or suffer 
what is there feigned to be suffered or to be done the reflection that strikes the heart is not that the evils before us are real evils but that they are evils to which we ourselves may be exposed if there be any fallacy it is not that we fancy the players but that we fancy ourselves unhappy for a moment but we rather lament the possibility than suppose the presence of misery as a mother weeps over her babe when she remembers that death may take it from her the delight of tragedy proceeds from our consciousness of fiction if we thought murders and treasons real they would please us no more imitations produce pain or pleasure not because they are mistaken for realities but because they bring realities to mind when the imagination is recreated by a painted landscape the trees are not supposed capable to give us shade or the fountains coolness but we consider how we should be pleased with such fountains playing beside us and such woods waving over us we are agitated in reading the history of henry v yet no man takes his book for the field of agincourt a dramatic exhibition is a book recited with concomitants that increase or diminish its effect familiar comedy is often more powerful in the theatre than on the page imperial tragedy is always less the humour of petruchio may be heightened by grimace but what voice or what gesture can hope to add dignity or force to the soliloquy of cato a play read affects the mind like a play acted it is therefore evident that the action is not supposed to be real and it follows that between the acts a longer or shorter time may be allowed to pass and that no more account of space or duration is to be taken by the auditor of a drama than by the reader of a narrative before whom may pass in an hour the life of a hero or the revolutions of an empire end of section twenty two